You're freshly back from going out west. You ready to move to the desert finally? I don't think I'd make it out there, man. No? I don't. What is it about it? That is, is, is it the heat, the, the, the heat of the weather or, you know, a, a different kind of heat? <laughs> yeah, you got that. So they've been having a lot of rain. Evidently, I brought oh, okay. overclass, overcast skies with me. So they had a lot of rain. It was There was even actually patches of green here and there. Oh, wow. So I would miss uh, the different color variances. But um, the hard right presence there is... A presence there. Well, we'll we'll talk about that heat <laughs> in a minute, but yeah. we definitely have uh, some great friends out west, a little further west than uh, Arizona. Our friends over in California at Salastina. Salastina is classical music's wingman. By day, they're world-class performers and studio musicians who've played on your favorite films. By night, they're on a mission to broaden the definition of what classical music was, is, and can be. More on Salastina here in a bit. Also want to send a huge shout-out and thanks to Schubert Club. Since 1882, Schubert Club has been creating inspiring musical experiences in the Twin Cities. More on them at Schubert.org and more on one of their upcoming programs here in a second. But back to Arizona. Mm. So what you mean to tell me is that what we see on the news, what many of us sort of think about the social, maybe even political climate of Arizona, it's true what we're seeing and hearing. I think that on the news, you're seeing the most extreme. Mm -hmm. But I'm just talking about there's an awful lot of, of bumper stickers, flags, etchings in glass and things like that, full of vulgarity mm. and, you know, just screw your feelings, essentially. People are suffering. You know, people show what they're feeling and that sort of energy plastered all over your cars mm. and, and on mm -hmm. your T-shirts and stuff. To me, that's that's suffering. I, I hope they feel better. Maybe maybe uh, Triloquy can help them do that. You think they'd enjoy this show? <laughs> <laughs> let's do it let's I do mean, they, a little they, market they, research they, they, they should be on our side we're talking about american classical music they're talking about america first all the time you know That's so right. <laughs> so it seems like there could be some a lot we've kind of had this conversation before you, you you don't seem to be so convinced that 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 is a bridge that could be drawn we can't even get them to wear a mask how are we going to get them to listen to a <laughs> classical music well you know it wasn't just your dealing with uh that sort of heat down mm -hmm. in arizona you're of course visiting your father how That's is right. how's dad he's having uh intermittent issues with uh vertigo right now so as soon as he gets that under control i'll feel better but really it was a low-key trip we spent an awful lot of time just talking a lot of eating yeah and i did actually get out uh a few times to explore a little bit uh by myself which will be made clear in the second movement here with the music choice and of course there's the visits visits to the dispensaries you know oh yes of course of a, course a positive experience and in, in and out or lots of paperwork and line waiting and i went to in and out too yep. oh, oh yeah very I had good had a double yes. double <laughs> with fries animal style yep no, but I meant the dispensaries and in, 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 in and out. Not, oh, not I went in. Anymore. I went in and I said, "Look, you don't have to do any of the education piece with me. Just show me what you got. Tell me what's good, and I'll be out of your hair." You're like, "I'm probably older than your mother. Give me a joint and leave me alone." Okay, no, okay, but I, I was actually thinking about your father um, last week. So, and I guess I'll need to link it in the description. So, Rolling Stone came out with a list of. Uh, Singers, They're, they they love these uh these lists. The top two hundred. Talk talk a little bit about your uh reaction to what you saw represented on this list. Number one, I, I'm quickly looking here. 
according to Rolling Stone, you know, Aretha Franklin is number one. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to, you know, argue that I'm going to, you know, put some R-S-P-E-C-T on her name. Sure. Uh, <laughs> but generally, what did you think about some of these rankings you're seeing when you're getting down into the 30s, the 50s, the 110s? See, it always seems like, you know, they put Stevie Wonder back in the 60s and 70s. And for some reason, Bob Dylan's number seven. <laughs> like what? <laughs> well, so I was glad to see that that didn't happen. Um, I didn't see Roberta Flack's name. I don't know where she mm, popped up. Yeah, see, there are so many names that just didn't so, yeah, make it. It's opinion. So, you know, I, I smirk at it a little bit, but I'm not upset. But, but you know, back to your father, I was thinking about him because an artist that I know he appreciates was not on this list at all. And the people are upset. Talk to me. Who the woman it? behind the this masterpiece. Let's listen to just a little bit. Of love and sleep and tight Are rolling by like thunder now As I look in your eyes I hold on to your body Nice, nice, you know, smooth tones there. That's of his course, favorite the one and track. only Celine Dion. What is your knee-jerk reaction to Celine Dion not making it to this list of top 200 singers? I, she's great, but I'm not a fan. Doesn't bother me. Really? Why, why, why are you so quick to say that? I mean, you can't deny that she has had global impact. You may not personally like her. You don't personally like all 200 people on this list. You're mm-hmm. saying it's neither here nor there that she didn't make it? No, nope, doesn't bother me. Mm, it bothers me. But also keep in mind that I worked as a mobile DJ doing weddings, and I've heard a lot of Celine Dion oh, and, maybe and associated with weddings. May, maybe, so. maybe tracks like this one. And listen, (laughs) I can admit and understand how people can talk about things being overplayed, things being, you know, cheesy at this point or whatever. I think it's so um, hurtful to me (laughs) to see a singer like this left off this list. And I'm going to be honest with you, Scott, double hurtful for the sort of blasé opinion that a lot of people have about it, because we have Rolling Stone, this institution that has such a huge responsibility that so many people look up to and consider the gold standard of of music, if they're going to leave Celine Dion off of a off of a list like this, you know who else are they going to leave off? At what point are people going to be outraged, Scott? <laughs> what 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 is going to get your blood going? You know what is going to get your heart pumping? Is is <laughs> is there no reason for you to have any sort of uh, energy or opinion <laughs> like all these protesters outside of Rolling Stones, you know, upset that, that Celine Dion did not make this list. Because Garrett, it's just a list. <laughs> it's a list. It's just, this is, this is, they do this all the time. Watch next year, next New Year's Day. If we're still here, Rolling Stone will have another list and it'll be different and people are going to be mad. Great. Here's a cape. 
Now you can be Superman. <laughs> it's just a list. I hear it's a you. List. And I think if I'm going to get out of my own personal emotions about the disrespect that they're putting on Celine Dion, I think it is dangerous, maybe even harmful for us to continue the practice of defining ourselves by institutions, defining ourselves by institutional thought, the way that, you know, other folks yes. or, now, or other organizations think of that. I get it. And and we should likely move away from that. Do you think that Beyonce cares that she came in eight at eight? And are you upset? I don't think it's about an artist caring. I think a little bigger than that. I think about codifying history, creating time capsules. One day someone is going to go back and look at this list and say, look at how ignorant music people were back in 2023. You know, they didn't even include such and such on the list. You know, mm -hmm. I, I think about it on that level. This speaks to our generation. And let me tell you, okay. we're not reading Rolling Stone. So really, it speaks to your generation and your generation's lack of ability to really understand and, 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 and highlight... Don't. World-class music <laughs> as we should. Don't hang that around my neck. <laughs> oh, no, but you're, you're the one sitting here throwing your hands up in the air, all who cares? Rolling Stone's and what, been and what around if, for longer and see, and, than I've Okay, been and see, you've been on vacation, so I'm going to have to give you a hard time this week. Mm. If I'm going to go even further, is it not your generation that has codified the current way that we think about classical music? I mean, what, what I it's our, was, it's, it's I our it was, generation that had to come and clean up the mess that y'all made. I, I, think, I think that, that was what it prior, is. prior to codified. <laughs> this is good. This is good. This will be a fun opus. Let me let me let me roll this all the way back around okay. to Arizona. You know, talking about American classical music. Celine Dion. I don't know if a lot of people know Celine Dion is actually Canadian, mm -hmm. but um, back for uh, one of the um, the rocking for the USA TV specials. I don't really see him anymore. I don't know if they're still on as a culture. I don't think we're in front of the TV in, in that way anymore. But she gave a rousing rendition of God Bless America and for a world-class singer who isn't from the United States to belt the phrase, you know, my home sweet home, mm. I think that's very significant. Is that not a place for all of us, those Arizonas, us Minnesotans, all of us to just come together and rally around, offer some positivity, sure. and instead of just Great. shrugging it off, yeah, you know, this, offering this, positivity this is one to this point. This is one point that we could gather. God bless America. God bless Celine Dion and all of her fans. <laughs> I'm not saying she doesn't have a great voice. <laughs> she does have a great voice, doesn't she? She does. And God, what if she's 201? <laughs> <laughs> what if she's number 201? Under some of the other some of the other people that's on this list, according <laughs> according to Rolling Stone. According to Rolling Stone, right. you would not have as, lined up this list. As according to Rolling Stone, as mm, shrugged off by 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 many of by many of you, so. right? Because they're going to be so hurt that <laughs> that I shrugged off. <laughs> I haven't picked up a Rolling Stone in twenty years, and they're going to be so hurt to find out that I don't agree with their list. I mean, the conductor. Let me let me tie this to the arts. Mm. The conductor that I probably respect the most in my career, you know, the conductor that I've worked with, I'll, I'll be specific, the conductor that I uh, respect the most in my career so far, every now and again, when you could tell he was really frustrated, he would say things like, you know, you really just 
I don't know what to say. I mean, Celine Dion does it perfectly. You know, it would, it would, it would go on a couple minute rant okay. about about Celine. Anyway, okay. I, I, I can I can sit here and fanboy and be upset about Rolling Stone, but I think again the broader point is what we've already touched on. We can't define ourselves by what the institutions say, what the institutions think. We can't put so much weight into those sorts of opinions because it's up to us. It's us. It's up to the the people to really codify what we mean to codify. There are those of us who codify Celine Dion as one of the greatest. There are also some of us who codify classical music as something far broader than has been defined by the existing institutions as run and operated and managed by the generation older than me because they won't even let me in. That's that's y'all. So we're here to clean all of that up this week on Triloquy. God bless each and every one of you. (laughs) Let's get started. Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, Opus 182. Just quickly. (laughs) You're not done. I'm I'm not quite done. (laughs) I think my point is we have to put some energy, a little bit of energy behind those things because who is it not okay to leave off of this list? What if Aretha Franklin wasn't on the list at all? Is that something to just say, oh, well, or, or, um, Stevie Wonder or, you know, these these foundational people. Is it okay to just see uh, uh, an institution like Rolling Stone just leave them off? And we're like, oh, well, it's just Rolling Stone. Uh, I mean, my my point is the time capsule conversation. We're we're really creating history here. And if if history is being painted wrong, I'm sorry, I have an opinion on it. (laughs) But uh, what was the matrix that was developed in order for that list to be created? Are a, they checking a, a, off boxes? A room full of probably 12 che- people who just see? listed their favorite artists and okay. Celine wasn't on any of their now, lists. How old are those people there? Y'all's what, age. Where, where, <laughs> we don't know that. Okay. We don't right, know fine. that. We don't. we don't. We don't know how many people came up with it or if it's just one guy pulling names out of his ass. You're right. You're right. Okay. For those of you who have never listened to this podcast before, (laughs) Triloquy is a show where Scott and I take the idea of classical music and we sit it next to conversation. We sit it next to stories in the news. We sit it next to pieces of music that may or not uh, be historically, traditionally approximated to that phrase classical music. But we make it all make sense, all toward the greater goal of decolonizing that phrase classical music, making it something that's really ours, really defined by us. For more information on the Triloquy podcast, to learn uh, more and to listen to past opuses and to contribute, go over to our website, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y dot O-R-G. In addition to all of your very generous support, support for Triloquy comes from Schubert Club. Coming up on January 26th, Schubert Club is featuring Adventure to New Classical with J.D. Steele, composer and vocals. For this performance at the new Luminary Arts Center, J.D. Steele has written all new music and is joined by an extraordinary group of Minnesota music friends, including keyboardist Tommy Barbella. I have to say, Schubert Club is really, really, really stretching what they put into their program. J.D. Steele isn't by any means the first soul 
R&B, you know, black classical, American classical artists that they have platformed. Mm -hmm. They're really dedicated to expanding that definition and that approach. And I really appreciate all the work they do. I'm going to be out of town on uh, January 26th. I'm going to be over at Sphinx. But I hope anyone who is in the uh, Twin Cities area uh, to go check out this show again, Thursday, January 26th at 7.30 p.m. More information on that at Schubert.org. I also want to give a thanks and shout out again to Salestina coming up on February 4th, 2023. Salestina is hosting their happy hour number 111 with Derek Sky. Derek Sky is one of the new fresh composers on the scene. You'll get to listen to some of his music. You'll get to um, hear some of his uh, conversation and dialogue, and you'll get to do it all in the Salestina way. For more information and to get tickets for that event again on Saturday, February 4th at 11 a.m. Pacific time, visit salestina.org. We have composer Peter Nell in the third movement, excited to uh, share that conversation with y'all. He has written uh, a new opera that tells a story that many of us don't know. I'm very honored and excited to uh, get y'all on to that. We're going to um, be stinging and stabbing in the second movement i'll say those are mm. i guess those are your hints see you, you you're sitting here shrugging at uh celine dion I, I'm, I'm a shrug all over sting today because who is this i don't know him i've never heard of him Th- that's i'm your, just joking that's your opinion <laughs> go go ahead and get on on staff over there at rolling stone and, and make up a list and get, and get them together and, okay. we'll, <laughs> and we'll find people who will disagree with that we're uh i'll i'll get a little woo woo in the finale today it's not going to be a fiery finale. It's going to be more of a woo-woo finale. But for now, we'll go ahead and jump into movement one. All right, Scott, I have a, a very quick natural to offer this week. So last week we were talking about the uh, stories surrounding Afton Battle uh, stepping down as executive director from uh, the Fort Worth Opera down in Texas about how, you know, we have really been surrounding her as a community. She's one of the few uh, black women leaders in opera uh, these days, at least here in the United States. But she's, you know, done what black women do best, has uh, climbed the mountain and excelled despite, you know, what has happened. Uh, since we last recorded, it's been announced that Afton Battle has been appointed Vice President of Artistic Operations at Lyric Opera of Chicago. Mm. No shade, okay? Let me say that first and let me say it again. No shade. This is an upward move for Afton. You know, sure. if you want to put Fort Worth Opera next to Lyric Opera of Chicago, that's all I'm going to say. We're celebrating Afton Battle, and I just wanted to make sure folks uh, got that update. So congratulations to Afton. Uh, but let's go ahead and jump into this week's accidentals. Uh, this first one comes from independent.co.uk. I'm going to go ahead and assign an accidental to this. I'm going to give it a sharp here. Reading here again from independent.co.uk. Tar. Leading female conductor Marin Alsup claims Kate Blanchett film is anti-woman. Mm-hmm. So we've already talked about Tar a little bit. I think uh, since the last time we talked about it on Triloquy, I talked with a couple of friends who have nothing to do with classical music, aren't in the field, and really ranked it high up there as far as the movies that they saw in 2022. Yeah. So, you know, I guess one of the things that we can get into is the fact that we have a, a community of audiences who are just enjoying a film, and we have a community of musicians and music professionals who are reading between the lines and really seeing through the film 
for something a little different. And of course, what that little thing different is, is a film that's shitting all over Marin Alsop, a woman conductor who's really led the way and blazed the trail for so many people. Let's go ahead and just jump right into this. As someone with a background in the acting arts, do you have an opinion on Kate Blanchett's role in all of this mess and all of this drama? To what extent does the responsibility go for an actor when we come to the so-called or not defamation of a real living person? First off, we have to determine whether or not she knew that it was uh, pretty obviously based on the life of Marin Alsop, or at least her memoir. Yeah, That's, that's at least uh, the accusation that's leveled. But I can tell you that every single actor working at that cal- well. Most actors that I know, I'm not going to even say professional, most actors that I know take a lot of care to do their research. Now, I can't say that Kate should have known that this was based on Marin Alsop. I don't know that, you know, when this film was starting to be made, that she would have been able to connect those dots. Right. I do think that she probably would have started spending a whole lot of time watching conductors work, right. looking at interviews with. Uh, uh, conductors. And I'm looking at an interview with Kate on wmagazine.com where she says she can't imagine her life without Lydia Tarr. She said that she immediately inhaled the script as soon as it was uh, uh, sent to her. Uh, let me quote here. Todd sent me the script, talking about Todd Field, the, the writer of the script. I inhaled it. He wrote it at the beginning of the pandemic. Todd was a musician first, so there was a musical quality to the script, and not just because it's set in the classical music world. It could just have easily been about an architect, a painter, or a writer, anyone in a position of top institutional power, and the way that being in that position gets in the way of their sense of self and ability to relate to people. Sure, I don't diminish how life-changing this was for Kate Blanchett, but again, I think the question is, do actors have a responsibility or have any blame, have any onus when we're looking at stories like this? We have a woman, a real-life woman, who is hurt, who feels uh, disparaged to, you know, feels like this is a disparagement, not just to her, but women conductors across the field. You know, I understand that Kate Blanchett doesn't have the time to have a, a lifetime's worth of, um, of, of experience in the field. I also understand that it's not helpful to, uh, to shit on Kate Blanchett a, a, a woman actor, you know, as a, mm -hmm. as, as a means of, of standing up for Marin Alsop. I, I also see that. I just think my question just really becomes what is all of this being built on? All of this life experience, all of these uh, great memories, all of these potential awards, you know, even a, a potential yeah. award Academy. for Kate Blanchett. Yeah. It just seems like all of this is foundationalized on the neck of a real life woman. And it's hard for me not to point that out and think about what that means. And if there is some onus on actors to really go the extra step. Remember we had Sasha Baron Cohen who stepped away from the movie about Freddie Mercury because he wasn't comfortable with the, the portrayal. So we do have examples of actors walking away from gigs, not here to, you know, necessarily say one way or another. I just think it's worth considering and talking about. I see your point. However, Freddie Mercury, you know, you can find that research easily. 
you yeah. can find all sorts of information. If you don't know that the character you're portraying is based on a real life person, how would you be able to do that research? It's just, or would right. you, or, and how would you know, would she know to then go, oh, this, this looks like it could be a sticky situation. So I'm going to bail on the project. Right. I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know. I, I would put more of it on the producers and writers. Sure. Sure. That's the, my, that's where I would start. I'll read a little bit from this article, you know, just to refresh this. Um, it says here in the New York Times, critic Zachary Wolf wrote that, quote, the protagonist is clearly based partly on Alsip. So, mm -hmm. you know, those, those are very uh, clear words. There, there's no uh, reading between the lines as far as he's concerned. It's obvious that this is that. OK, so moving away from Kate Blanchard. Let's go to this New York Times critic. Mm -hmm. What is his role in all of this for all of the folks who genuinely have no idea, you know, how to connect those lines? Again, the folks that I'm thinking about who aren't in the industry, who aren't musicians, who went and saw a, a, a great film. Now they know, thanks to Zach Wolf. Do you sure. think that was helpful? And I'm not saying that it's not helpful. I'm just wondering, do, do you think that added? Some positive context. Just pointing, just pointing that out. I don't know about. I don't know if positive or negative context because when we first started talking about this, the uh, the conversation was surrounding how um, Marin is kind of picking up the pieces because if it's partly based on her story and the character Tar is actually accused of misconduct, whereas Marin has not been. People are going to wonder what parts are true and what is not. Is uh, Maestro Alsup, uh, you know, they, they might assume that she engaged in misconduct, which right. she did not. Right. So there's that piece of it. Man, I don't know. This it it, it starts getting really messy because we also but, can't pretend that uh, movies and other media haven't inspired reinvestigation or reprobing or, mm -hmm. or or those sorts of things. We don't know if Marin has dealt with that. We don't know what lawyers are interested in seeing her emails now or or what accusers there are that haven't made it to right. a, a news line. Right. I'm, I'm thinking about that as sure. well. And uh you also met you were you were talking about uh the responsibility of Zachary Wolf. Okay, so um what about the people who don't have the the connection to the music and and have watched it and went, man, this is an amazing thing? Do they need to know? Will it change their opinion if they knew the mess, if they knew the drama my, behind it? My answer is absolutely yes. Think about how many things we have all uh, grown affection for or appreciated, and that opinion has changed. Once we learn what it really is, mm. let's return to the Gollywog conversation. Mm. There are people who have not only engaged the music that's inspired by that, you've spoken to knowing people who as children had some, you know, is it not important for them to know the history of, of those sorts of dolls, that sort of language? Absolutely. Mm. I have the same response to this film. Gotcha. It's, it's absolutely vital that, that those people understand what is really behind the, this at least the narrative that is being connected to this movie. One of the quotes that I wanted to point out, though, is Maestro Alsop actually, you know, for her, this transcended the fact that it lines up with a lot of uh, of her life. Right. She's quoted as saying, I was offended as a woman. I was offended as a conductor. 
I was offended as a lesbian. There are so many men, actual documented men, this film could have been based on, but instead it puts a woman in the role, gives her all the attributes of those men. It feels anti-woman. I, I see that. And I see that. That's exactly what we said. You know, right. when we were reading the other articles weeks ago, maybe a, a month or so ago right. about this article, there are, I'll, I'll just, you know, reiterate what is being said, real life living men who are still around here working after, you know, accusations have been proven true, maybe not working in the United States, but working over in Italy and mm -hmm. working, mm -hmm. working elsewhere, all of that could have been the case. I guess, you know, my, the passion that, that I have behind this conversation comes from me putting myself in Marin's shoes. Let me pretend that I am important enough for someone to write some biopic or, or some series or, okay. or something. I am going to care how I am depicted. I am going to care how you, Scott, are depicted. And it will be very easy <laughs> for them to depict you in a certain kind of way that you would not appreciate. You wouldn't have no smoke for Matthew McConaughey or whoever plays you in the in the biopic for painting you as something. I, I, won't, I won't even put anything out into the universe, but painting you into something that you don't appreciate. Would you not think that someone on that team, if not the actor himself, has the has the range mm. to figure out who Scott Blakenship is or who this could actually be based on? And, you know, for the sake of becoming more of the character learn a little bit more you know we're trying to put respect on the acting arts is that not in the in the framework in the wheelhouse in the uh, in the list of responsibilities for actors on on that level again i'm not trying to throw rocks at kate blanchett but i just think i'm trying to make the point that we have to at least entertain the idea that there is some onus that is being that that should be put on people who are contributing to the way Marin Alsop is feeling right now i get that and i Basically, what I would come back with is I would think that if Kate knew, maybe she would have done more research or maybe would have backed out. Yeah. My point is, is that I don't think that, first off, if the writer is uh, being accused of partially basing the, the film off the memoir or the life of Maestro Alsop, yeah. shouldn't people be going after him for plagiarism? Or some sort of there's that right. Uh, I, I'm I, I'm not saying that you know he used actual situations or words out of her mouth. That's not what I'm saying, but uh, the idea w was there. Um, if Kate did not have that bit of information, then she's just in the dark. You know, she's just thinking that she's doing a a, a story about a, a, a troubled person that happens to be a conductor. Yes, I get that. And we can, you know, go down the line, splitting hairs, deciding where we draw the line all day. You know, how much of this do we put on the series of directors that were involved in this? Do we go to the people the uh, that were working craft services? You know, mm -hmm. like there, there, right, there's right, always right. more and more to go. I, uh, but but again, if I if I center the fact that there is a real life woman who in real life has been approximated to this film and in real life. She has very visceral feelings about it. 
that's what I'm centering. And that's that's what I'm sure. thinking about first. You know, Marin Alsop is also quoted here as saying, to have an opportunity to portray a woman in that role and to make her an abuser, for me, that was heartbreaking. I think all women and all feminists should be bothered by that kind of depiction because it's not really about women conductors, is it? Mm-hmm. It's about women as leaders in our society. People ask, can we trust them? Can they function in that role? I'm not let me not put words in Marin Alsop's mouth, but I can't help but to feel a little smoke there for Kate Blanchard. Mm. You know, for her to say this should be uh, offensive to all women, all feminists. You know, she's not talking about me, okay? But Kate Blanchard is in in that category. I, I did not mean to make this about Kate Blanchett, but just the more that I think about the stress and whatever that we don't see that Marin Alsop is is going through, yeah. for me, it's hard not to draw that line. I, I would certainly uh, be careful about this sort of thing moving forward, because if work that I do is being contextualized as being anti-black or anti-a black person, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. it would that that would break my heart, you know, to to be positioned in that way. So I I I think it's an interesting conversation. I have yet to see the film. I don't know if you've that seen was going to be my last either. yeah, that was going to be my last question to you is what does this impact the you're going to see the film or not? <sighs> That's the other part about it because I know how uh clever <laughs> the the music industry is for, certainly. Mm-hmm. So if I tie that over to the film industry is all of this a part of you know the continued rollout? Is all of, is all of this a part of? Oh well, let's go see what they're talking about with this film. I don't know. I feel like at the, at this point, I really do need to see it as a person that works in this field. You know, mm. there there are folks who want to talk to me about this movie. I'm so sorry that I just haven't sat down and and watched it. But I, I think about those things as well. Is 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 this hype? You know, gonna benefit? the film ultimately the the actors the the movie makers who are you know being accused of disparaging Marin Alsop in this way yeah. one thing that i will say just to to tie this up i definitely hear maestro alsop when she talks about how this can be positioned as questioning women leaders in our society you know i i work for an arts nonprofit i'm on the board of a a couple arts nonprofits. I'm closely aligned with a, a few others. And, you know, with the exception of uh, the Gateways Music Festival, all of these organizations are run and head uh, headed by women. You know, even when we think about Sphinx, we'll be talking about Sphinx um, next week and, and following, mm-hmm. you know, Afa Dworkin is at the, the the head of that. And for many people, Sphinx is the, the epicenter when it comes to diversity and classical music, all of these things that we're, we're talking about. So I hear Marin Alsop's point, and I hope that folks can be encouraged that at least in arts administration and arts advocacy, women are most certainly at the head. Mm. Maybe we need to not forget that that has to translate artistically as well. We're still seeing um, uh, women othered and marginalized on the podium, uh, still to a degree in certain aspects in orchestral music more broadly. So just a, a conversation that it's important to continue to have. I'm thinking about Marin Alsop. I've met her and I yep. did not meet a mean woman, someone you know who I would contextualize as nothing but nice mm-hmm. you know conductors especially conductors um but anyone any conductor of of that stature 
you know, has all the room to, oh, I can't be bothered or let me take the back entrance and all of that stuff. Right. That's not the Marin Alsop that that I met. Mm. So we'll we'll see how upset I still am after I see the film. I need to watch the film. But stay tuned. Thoughts and prayers to uh, everyone involved. We're going to transition to our next accidental uh, with a performance led by maestro Marin Alsop. This is an excerpt here, the finale to uh, Gustav Mahler's Symphony Number no. 2. Uh, performing here is the Sao Paulo Symphony Orchestra, again, under the baton of the one and only maestro Marin Alsop. Soonest. You know, Mahler wasn't one of the composers who I spent a whole bunch of time venerating because I don't play horn or I don't play trumpet. You know, mm. that's that's really their bag. Mahler symphonies are also so long that you don't <laughs> typically play them on the radio. So right. I don't have that relationship with them. I've, I, I can't even remember... I've definitely performed Mahler uh, one, two, and four. I can't remember if there, uh, if any other ones in there. Do you find that you have any sort of? Uh, I'm just thinking about Mahler because we just listened. Do, do you have any sort of relationship with Mahler, considering you know how long it is? Maybe there are movements that make it through the radio. I was about to say, uh, apart from the movements that really seem to, you know, set some people off. You know, don't play just the movement. Yeah, I mean, but the, 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 the movement is symphony size. Sometimes, damn, you. you know, 30-minute movements. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but certainly a, a composer who, you know, is... Who, who has composed. Who, who has composed. Yes, exactly. <laughs> All right. Shout out to uh, Marin Alsa. Um, hope we can, you know, spread more positivity. It's just not... It, it's not of any use for the, for there to be a, a woman conductor out there to be feeling this way. What what value is, is being drawn... From that, you know, does that help the industry uh, thrive? Does that help the industry become more diverse? I don't think it does. So, can I squarely blame the film? Maybe not. I, you know, there there are arguments either way. But at the end of the day, we have a very influential living conductor who represents um, a marginalized community, specifically within conductors. I think we owe it to ourselves to listen to her and listen to what. What she's saying? Uh, they said that they tried to get in touch with Kate's management uh, for the story and, and didn't hear back. I would be interested to hear what she says. Yeah, me as well. All right. Well, let's move on uh, to our uh, next accidental for this week. I'll I'll pass this to you. What uh, what accidental would you give this? I want to give this a sharp and also a shout out to a member of the Triloquy family. Dr. Garrett Schumann over in Ann Arbor, Michigan. If you want to go back in the Wayback Machine, visit Opus 34 of Triloquy when uh, that was his first feature on the podcast. But he's been um, published in New York Times. We're looking at newyorktimes.com. A Black Composer's Legacy Flourishes 500 Years After His Birth. This is the reputation of Vincente Lusitano, one of the earliest known composers of African descent active in Europe, was thwarted for centuries. Yep. 
Yep. The article starts out uh, with a, a quick anecdote. It talks about uh, Alice Jones, Dr. Alice Jones, who is preparing to go out uh, and protest in conjunction with uh, the Black Lives Matter movement of 2020. And, you know, this this gets connected with not only composers like Joseph Bologna, Chevalier de Saint-Georges, but uh, this composer that we're, we're, we're talking about now. And it's a shame that I have to go back and look at the name Vicente Lusitano. Mm-hmm. So, you know, first and foremost, even before we get into who this composer was and why we don't know him, I think when we talk about contemporary movements, protests, all of that stuff, it's easy to say, oh, well, we all have an obligation, but a lot of people don't know where their place and all of that is. If we're connecting super historical, if we're connecting 16th century Western European classical music to contemporary protest and and contemporary uh, social movements, I think, you know, a lot more people can find their place. Mm. I just, you know, wanted to make that point. I think it's very salient that the article um, starts this way. Just to read a little bit. This is from uh, Dr. Jones. I felt like it was my obligation to make sure in this moment when we're talking about Black Lives Mattering that we also talk about Black art and Black music. So definitely just wanted to um, highlight that. But this composer, Vicente Lusitano, um, African Portuguese descent. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're saying probably born um, around 1520, died sometime around 1562, and really had a, a a huge impact in his day on on the art form. It certainly seems like he had charted a path that was similar to Joseph Bologna Chevalier de Saint Georges in that he was. Kind of continental. He moved all around, wrote sacred and secular music, but um, it was, it seemed like the church was where he got his foothold. Um, just, just like just like black musicians today. Amen. Amen. I wasn't trying to draw that <laughs> that comparison, but thank you for it. Uh, so you hadn't heard of you no, hadn't heard the name all. of Lusitano? Yeah, never. Okay, so here's the question. You just found out that here's this black man, you know, from 15 mm-hmm. Who wrote this music? Are you going to go and get the album? Are you going to buy the vinyl? You know, because I'm rooting for everybody black. If I see it, I got to get it now. <laughs> but I think really the the more important point, at least for me to think about, among all of the among all of the women, among all the white men, you know, among all of these composers that we will never know about, just because we will just never know about them. Among them are black people, yes, you know, and right, we're and we're right. and we're seeing this more and more. How important do you think it is to make the point that black people have always been involved in this? It's, you know, we we talk about American classical music, the spiritual being the roots of what we should consider classical on this side of the planet and all that stuff. Yes, even in that Western European viewpoint, there are black people and have always been. How important, how significant is that? We're talking about a different audience. So if you want to talk about people, say, 45, like my age, 45, 50 and up, I think it's very important to do it because there is there are so many stereotypes that are in place yeah. for the, the let, let's, let's take it from a radio perspective. The, the listenership that I have has been sold the it's relaxing it's elite it's smart it's it makes you smarter when you listen so you're sort of elevated yourself when you listen to it right and all you see is pictures of beethoven bach 
Mozart, bunch of bunch of white guys. And so you get it in you get it into your mind that that's all there is. So that is exactly the audience that needs to know that all these early music fans, there were black people there making the music too. Because then you start laying the foundation to bring in the Duke Ellingtons and and the uh, Samuel Coleridge Taylors and then the composers of today. That's my philosophy. There there has to be a, a, a diversity, if I may use that word, a diversity of tactics, because I, I guess I just wouldn't connect this composer to uh, a Duke Ellington, but mm-hmm. I can see what you're you're saying that 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 makes sense. And if that's what those people need <laughs> to to make those connections, so be it. I think for me, one of the things that I just hope the, the the nuance that I hope that those audiences and others can understand is that the worth of blackness, the worth of being black, isn't elevated because. Oh, now we're discovering that we even managed to, you know, do that sort of thing back in the in the 1600s. Mm-hmm. I, I can celebrate this as a diversity of, of 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 highlighting the diversity of blackness historically. You know, among the things that we have done, you know, over the course of time mm-hmm. is be a part of Western European classical music, even back in the 16th century. So to that extent, I celebrate it. I just always want to make sure that we aren't approximating excellence or worthiness to classical music in that way. The point that stuck out to me, which is something that I've been talking with other folks quite a bit recently, is uh, the way that technology impacted his career. Because, you know, we've got all these great ways to communicate now, but in the past, how much was lost due to inefficient bookkeeping or record keeping Mm -hmm. or um the the chambermaid comes in and uses your new opera score to light a fire in the the fireplace all these stories if only she did it more go on all of these stories (laughs) let me see so um uh garrett actually outlines a story in here about how there was some sort of a debate with another composer and even though uh, the other composer was considered to have won. He started writing all these things, really discrediting, discrediting Lusitano's uh, right. work. So even back then, the the Afro Portuguese man can't get listen, some good press. Listen, <laughs> so he can't get his word out. And you and you could jokingly talk about the maid who comes in and burns up the opera. You made that joke. I wasn't joking. There are composers who we have always known about mm-hmm. from the 16th century. You know, mm-hmm. this was not one of them for a reason, and that's, that's kind and of and, what and, I'm and maybe at. and maybe I'm stretching. You no, know, no, no, maybe no. it just so happens that this black man's music and legacy so happened to fall between the cracks into obscurity, at least in in until recent years. I don't think that's so much of a happenstance. I think. Uh, I, I think back to the interview, shout out to Angel Refuse, who came on Triloquy uh, talking about uh, Joseph Bologna's Chevalier de Saint-Georges, about how we tend to think of him as someone who was accepted by mm-hmm. French mm-hmm. society, by European society. But he was dealing with the same struggles as a lot of black people, uh, people of color deal with today. I guess you're highlighting this, and I just want to underscore it, that ingredient cannot be taken out of of this story the fact that black subjugation and black marginalization 
has existed, <laughs> has, right. has, is, is a part of, of, of classical music even way back when. And Philippe Canguiem, did I say that right? Um, a, a musicology professor at the University of uh, University of Tours in France said, and this is something that I brought up before, or a concept close to it. He says, "I have always been shocked at the paradox between the quality of Lusitano's accomplishments and how little we know about his life." Listen, and let me again. I, I've I've been talking about Joseph Bologna, you know, to to make these points. So I'll I'll bring him back up. We're talking about a black man in Europe who was a master fencer, fenced his way across Europe. He was friends with royalty and noble people, including Marie Antoinette herself. Yeah. He led a real-life regiment in war and created history even by by doing so. And we haven't even talked about his symphonies. We haven't talked about his, his violin playing. We haven't talked about his concertos. So these these people, this, these historical figures have gone over and beyond even outside of music and we don't know about these people. I never heard about Mozart doing half that stuff. Mm. But 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 uh, the, Chevalier is uh, the black Mozart, huh? Mm. Mm. <laughs> no, because uh, Mozart was like a, a pre-teen or mid-teenager when he first met Joseph Bologna and was jealous. Saw everything that he had going on and said, "Damn, I wish got, I was black." He's got appointments. He's got. <laughs> he can handle himself. Uh, the women love him. He's like that. Yeah. That I want to be that. L L Chevalier. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, I guess you kind of made a bit of this point earlier, but I'll just you know return to it as we learn more about the history even of strictly Western European classical music. We're talking about the classical era, Baroque era, even older. When we, when we learn more about these women and composers of color who even existed in those frameworks, again, you think that is a means toward more diverse programming and more uh, contemporary music these days, making the point that this has always been diverse, in your opinion, is the bridge toward us actually acting on that diversity and programming based on that diversity? Like, I, again, you're going to have to go back to the audience because, uh, like I said, 45, 50 and up, um, they'll listen to this and go, oh, great, okay. So I'm now I'm listening to music by a black composer. Mm -hmm. The younger set, yourself and the people that your peers, they're going to listen to this music by Lusitano and go, that sounds like Gabrielli. That sounds like... I mean, and let's just what, face what, it, that's what we'll, we'll have to practice not making those comparisons moving forward, because that's what many of the music presenters sure. will say. It sounds right. like X, Y, and Z. Still to this day, they say in Florence Price sounds like Dvorak, you mm -hmm. know, so we're, we're, mm -hmm. we'll always be facing that battle. But if you if you see this um, as a means, hey, let's let's do it then. Let's make sure we're getting more of Lusitano, uh, uh, Vincent. Here we go. See? <laughs> <laughs> What's the matter? Vicente Lusitano. Yeah. You see, I can I can spit out Joseph Bologna Chevalier de Saint Georges because of repetition, because of learning, mm. because of all of that stuff. So we I need, I, I won't say we, I'll put it on myself. I need to become more familiar. We all need to become more familiar and just really get into the depth of this art form and the diversity that has always existed in it. Uh Garrett Schumann is actually gonna uh come on Triloquy here in a few weeks. He's gonna be one of the Black History uh month features. So we'll get more uh from Garrett Schumann uh at that point. But until then, huge congratulations. 
congrats on this New York Times uh, byline and huge congratulations to the very important work that you're doing, highlighting the diversity of classical music as it always has existed. Uh, we're going to um, transition now into the second movement with music by Vicente Lusitano. This is a piece called Aspice Domine. It's performed by the Extet um, on the Boston Baroque channel. We'll listen to a little bit of this to get us into our second movie. You know, context is everything. So my first thought as we were listening to that was, hmm, that really reminds me of what I used to uh, think about late night classical radio. When I thought as a 13-year-old or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. when I think about turning on late night classical radio, that is the aesthetic that, that, that comes to mind. With that being said, the contextualization of this being music by a black composer, it can, it can kind of get to you if you really just allow yourself to go there. This is the voice of a black man that, you know, despite all of the odds has somehow survived. We can still hear him. You know, point. we can still mm -hmm. say his name. So I, I guess I wasn't completely buying <laughs> when you were saying, you know, people thinking about this as a black composer and that as a way forward. I, you know, I, I will say listening to that and putting it in the context of, you know, we're hearing from this marginalized person, despite all of the, the efforts uh, on the contrary. There's something to that. Mm -hmm. there, there's definitely something to that. I agree. I'm not, no, I'm not hating on you, but you wouldn't listen to that and go, oh, this is clearly written by an Afro-Portuguese composer. No, I, I'm absolutely not. So, you know, I, that, that conversation goes what goes uh, both ways. It's not necessarily representative of something unique in the way that he was unique historically. And at the same time, this is someone who's, uh, whose story that we certainly deserve to know especially considering, you know, the conversations that we're having about uh, discovering and rediscovering uh, marginalized composers uh, through, this, yeah. through this art form. Uh, but we're here in the second movement where Scott and I are going to talk a little bit about some music that we've been spending some time with. I'm going to actually stay in the uh, string realm with music by Nathan Johnson. So Nathan Johnson is a, a movie score composer who I hadn't heard of. You know, it was interesting when I was uh, thinking about this composer, I was thinking about, okay, we, we know the, the Beethoven's and the Mozart's, but we have to make a point to shine a light on those who aren't those, those folks. I wonder if it's similar in film music. We love and celebrate John Williams. Mm -hmm. John Williams is not the only film composer. And I just 
it it just makes me think about shining a light on the diversity of film composers that are also out there and all of the aesthetics and approaches. Anyway, Nathan Johnson is among them, and he uh, is credited uh, with the score to a film called Knives Out. I had never heard of this film. It actually uh, came on TV sometime over the uh, Thanksgiving break. I watched about the first hour, hour and a half, and... um, I, I kind of moved away from it, or I think Dell wanted to to watch something else. Anyway, I was really struck by the music that first time that I was watching it. Mm. So last night, I caught it on TV again and, and was able to complete it. I, I, I won't say anything about the movie, but I will say that it's it's a great film. It's, you know, it's not, you know, The Matrix for me. It's <laughs> not Kill Bill for me. It's not Django, but it's definitely a film that I found very intriguing. So I would definitely recommend uh, the movie, All Star Cast and all of that. Anyway, what I love so much about uh, the score to this film is that it matches the setting in an interesting way. So the film is shot outside of the Boston area in one of those old gloomy mansions that, you know, you used to see in horror films or 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 whatever, you know, small town uh, sort of vibe, very classic American vibe with that contemporary twist, the contemporary story we're getting. And I think the music does the same thing. The music has this very classic aesthetic, uh, uh, a sound that most people would attribute to classical music, even down to the instrumentation. But even so, there's a contemporary spin on it that I found really intriguing and I've enjoyed listening to. Here's a little bit of it. hear what i mean it's it's squarely so-called classical music but there's something about the approach the rhythms the the style even of playing the spiccato that we're hearing and all that stuff that just makes you think yeah this is something a little contemporary it made me turn my head to it yeah look yeah yeah so you call that spiccato you when you know when like you you have the bow really bouncing off the string and you're getting sort of that i hate to say the word scratchy but i'll use that word in a non-pejorative sense you know you're getting that scratchy sound it it, it really sounds like you're watching a or, or listening to music connected to a film where mm. something is about to go on i i can honestly say the TV was kind of, again, back to the Thanksgiving break when I was first exposed to this film, the TV was kind of just on. But this music, as you just said, made me turn my head and made me a fan of of this film. And that was the part that made me turn my head. And I know that the film had you sucked in because I came in from a week away to pick up my dog and you didn't even get up. Listen, and I'm not going to, again, give away the film, but... At the end, there is a person of color who gets her due. Oh. <laughs> so I have to support that. Okay. You know, again, especially as we're talking about rich people, heirs, mansions, and all these stuff. And it's a woman of color who wins. Mm. Anyway, hope that wasn't given too much away. But um, uh, let, we'll, we'll hear just the, the uh, tail end of this again. This is from the uh, score to Knives Out, the string quartet in G minor by Nathan Johnson. Thank you. 
I can even be a little nerdy and say I hear a little bit of inspiration, a, a tip of the hat to um, uh, Bernard Herman's Psycho thing, mm. you know, that 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 music. So mm-hmm. there, there's even connections that are made within the, the genre of, of film music there. And, and incredible music. I had never heard of the uh, composer Nathan Johnson, but I hope y'all will go uh, check him out. I've seen people tweeting um, about uh, something called Glass Onion. I, I I know literally nothing about it other than it's popular and people are talking about it. Yep. Nathan Johnson is also the composer um, behind mm-hmm. that. So maybe maybe I'll that that'll that'll be my uh, inspiration to go check out Glass Onion because of Nathan Johnson. Anyway, music from uh, Knives Out for me this week. Mine happened to me on Saturday night, and uh, I was driving around in my father's two thousand two. Uh, Ford Crown Victoria. So I was uh, looking like a state trooper in an unmarked car cruising around. People would just sort of get out of the road, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which was nice. So I'm on my way my way back from the dispensary. And, uh, you know, I can't have my phone hook up to the stock radio that's in the dash of sure. this car. So I'm listening to what I just had on my phone through headphones. And I just happened to have a few tracks from a 1986 live release with Sting. This is when he left the police and was just getting ready to mount the tour for the Dream of the Blue Turtles uh, release. And it was a a European tour that they were starting. Uh, I'm on the crest of this highway and I'm able to see out forever, it seemed like, in both directions. And the line of orange and red and yellow that faded into light blue. And then just an an amazing spread of of stars. It seems like they have their lights turned down in Phoenix. It's almost like it's a reaction to light pollution. Hmm. And just as I'm seeing this scene, uh, a piece of music comes across that starts with now that I have found you in the coolth of your evening smile, for the shade of your parasol, your love flows through me. Though I drink at your pool, I burn for you. And as I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking about the past uh, opportunities not taken, the way that what if might crawl into your mind and all of a sudden spark some pseudo emotion that may or may not last. In that moment, away from work, my shoulders actually had a chance to drop and I felt like, I felt like I had a tenuous connection to things around me. We're talking about 
a popular music publication who, you know, left out a very influential singer. We're talking about the pages of history who have left out a very important composer and composer of color, you know, in 16th century uh, England. Why is Sting up there? I'm not familiar with his music and maybe even with his impact, but he has impact that I can't help but to have a little bit of context on because he's a name that that people say. Mm-hmm. Why does Sting, you know, really deserve, and, and from your view, why does Sting deserve that veneration as a musician? Why should we even maybe consider going as far and approximating him to a classic tradition of music? For me, he was the first white artist I saw successfully uh, reach across to black musicians and and really create some music that spoke to me. Mm-hmm. Because in that band, you were hearing Branford Marsalis playing soprano saxophone. On the keys was Kenny Kirkland. Omar Hakim from Weather Report was the drummer. Daryl, I want to say Daryl Taylor. I'm, I'm going to forget the bassist's name, but his first name is Daryl. He played with Miles Davis. Mm. And, you know, we saw them create this fusion of, of jazz, pop, and rock that uh, was present at a very impressionable time. But also just to have that come up, you know, in the desert seeing this sunset happen, the stars revealing themselves, me having new realizations and for a moment feeling understood and cared for in a way. By staying. How precious. There were other things at work. <laughs> there were other things at work. Let's just let's just say that I felt I've, I was I I was feeling probably the best I have in uh, in a while. In that Time moment. away will do that, mm-hmm. and that's why we need it. Here's a bit of the end of this performance featuring these phenomenal musicians who Scott was naming there. Burn For You, featuring Sting from a 1985 performance and from the movie Bring On The Night. I was just about to say it's a great documentary. Yeah, I'll have to check that out as well. All right, well, we are transitioning into our third movement, and this week uh, our third movement guest is composer Peter Nell, West Coast-based composer, who I had a a really great time uh, dialoguing with a a couple weeks back. Uh, One of the main things that uh, Peter Nell joins me to talk about is a new opera that he uh, has composed called Archipov. I'm going to read the uh, description here. Archipov, son in English, is based on the true story about how nuclear Armageddon was barely averted during a tipping point in the Cuban Missile Crisis due to the moral conviction of one man. His heroism was kept under wraps by the Soviet Union for decades. Again, speaking about history that we uh, don't quite get to or Mm -hmm. things that aren't included in these time capsules we're (laughs) we're talking about, this is among them. I know a little bit about the, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, Again, 
we we could spin spin the yarn for a while about just the general parts of history that didn't quite make it to my education. You know, we can talk or about mine. the Korean War. We can right. talk about Vietnam. I would definitely put the Cuban Missile Crisis in that category. So, you know, not only I think uh, is this work and this this opera so important from that perspective. You know, just generally learning about the Cuban Missile Crisis, but learning about a, a bit of history connected to it that was really quelled down that that uh, the Soviet Union didn't want people to know about. So again, we talk about this opera, we talk about new opera and new music uh, in, in general, and the role that it can play in a broader society. So to get into uh, a convert and to get into my conversation uh, with Peter Nell, we're going to hear uh, an excerpt from the opera Archipove. This is a subtitled Storm, a libretto here by Stephanie Fleischmann. Hope y'all enjoy this music and my conversation with its composer, the one and only Peter Nell. I've noticed that there's a, a a break somewhere around sort of age 40, 45, 50, where um, people older than that have a, a deeper sense of what the Cuban Missile Crisis was, and people below that barely know what it was if they know it at all. And um, it, it and even then, you know, that kind of in my in my knowledge of the Cuban Missile Crisis was really limited to the main part of the crisis, which was that Cuba was smuggling. Uh, nuclear weapons to sorry the soviet union was was smuggling nuclear weapons to cuba um and then the u.s figured that out and um you know established a blockade there was a very tense moments where um anything could possibly happen and and then it got resolved and that was basically my knowledge of it um in doing our research and kind of reading about the you know the whole episode in much more depth as we worked on the opera first of all realizing that there was a whole secondary crisis that that really you know, almost no one knows about, and that was the what we focus on, which is that the Soviet Union sent um, four submarines to Cuba um, to establish a uh, a base there, and they saw fit to arm the the submarines with nuclear torpedoes. And um, when the U.S. figured out what was going on with the broader crisis of of the nuclear weapons on Cuba, they we we sent our fleet out uh, to the to the um, Atlantic to look for submarines. And we actually found all four of the submarines in the in the fleet, forcing three of them to surface. And and our submarine nearly fired the nuclear torpedo, which really forms the uh, the core of of our story. And and the one man on that on that submarine who really prevented the uh, the launch of the torpedo. It's great how this project uh, inspired you know deeper research and learning, not only for all of the audiences but for you as well. But I wonder what initiated the idea of this project in the first place. Was it a conversation or a news article? What what got this on your mind? Yeah, I was I was um, thinking about writing an opera, and um, I was looking for the right topic. Um, my wife actually happened to read an article in the New Yorker. Um, which was called um, uh, it was called World War III by mistake by Eric Schlosser, um, and that was in uh, published in December of 2016. And uh, within that, um, he really talks about various close calls that the world's had 
with nuclear exchanges. And there was actually really a brief mention of this, just a few sentences. It didn't actually say the name of the ship, the, who the captain was, or the, et cetera. It just said that there was this one, maybe, maybe the most dangerous moment was this, and, you know, and I very sketchily outlined this, the submarine nearly fired the nuclear torpedo and an officer um, prevented it from happening. And so, but that piqued uh, my interest and, we, you know, I dove in and did a little research to figure out, well, who was it and what was it? And the more I uh, read, the more I thought, wow, this, this is a story that needs to be told. And it's a great, you know, dramatic story that will, will be suitable for the form of opera. And just to frame the significance of, of this you know, bit of history that you're outlining, we can, I, I, I almost hate to create a what if situation, but from your perspective, what would have been uh, the implications? What would have been our story if the nuclear button had been pressed from that submarine? I think it's, it's pretty clear that if they had launched the nuclear torpedo, that in all likelihood, uh, we would have had all out nuclear war with, with the Soviet Union um, at that time in 1962, um, we you know, we didn't have the ICBMs yet either side. So it's not clear would that have been the end of the world, but it certainly would have been massive destruction, particularly in areas that were reachable by um, their weapons and our weapons, which would have been most of the Eastern US in, in our sense and most of, of the you know Western Russia, um, which is where most of their population is as well. So mm -hmm. it would have been, um, you know, I think unquestionably that was, that would have been a major nuclear um, war and, you know, civilization may or may not have survived it. And again, considering the uh, relative lack of memory that younger generations have with this time in history, on top of this story that's relatively obscure within the broader narrative of the Cuban Missile, missile Crisis, was there a sense of, responsibility that you felt, maybe a sense of fear? What was your emotional reality over the course of this project? You know, it, we were, in some ways, we're really talking less about this, you know, I would say obscure, but very important moment in history than we really are gesturing at the fact that this, this wasn't an isolated incident, that there were multiple close calls that we've had um, between us and the Soviet Union, and, you know, and that this continues and it continues to be a risk today. So we're not simply telling a historical story. We're really talking about trying to highlight a risk that that we the, as a world have, and you know that that really comes down to somewhat luck in the leadership we had on that submarine, and it was you know luck in the other scenarios where uh, nuclear exchanges were were you know possible and were averted, and you know that the right person was at the at the controls. And, you know, I think the, the question is, you know, what, what safeguards do we need or how do we, how do we make it uh, so that we're not relying on luck to continue our existence? And I, one of the reasons, you know, that I, again, that I asked that question is there are depictions of that time in history, but from more of a, a fictional perspective. I remember one of the X-Men films, you know, alleges that it's X-Men that, you know, uh, diverted one of those close calls. I, I wonder, considering the artistic nature um, of this project, how do you emphasize the true nature of it? This isn't a story that I'm making up while tapping into the creativity and the things that aren't so objectively historical? Yeah, no, that's, that's a great and interesting question, right? And it's, it's, I guess, decisions that you make as an artist about 
how much you're telling the story as close as, as, as you can get to the history of it versus, you know, creating um, elements of it or in the X-Men case, you know, even fantastical elements, um, but to get, you know, to tell a, a the core of a story, you know, in, in a different way. Um, we, we really, in this case, chose to stick pretty close to the actual story. We did a lot of research. Um, there was fairly limited direct information, but there was, there was actually quite a bit of, of um, primary sources translated at the National Security Archive. We spoke to some researchers who worked with the material and know, uh, and have interviewed and talked with and know uh, many of the submariners um, involved in the incident and, and, and American, um, you know, uh, um, sailors who were involved at the from from above. Um, and we really tried to piece together as much as possible, sort of what really happened. And there were still things gaps we filled in and and. You know, we created some, uh, well, Stephanie created some wonderful characters that sort of, um, uh, that, that gesture at overall the crew. But the key characters that we focus on are Hipov and Savitsky, who are the two captains and, and, and their confrontation that, that um, you know, where Savitsky was ready to fire the torpedo and Arkhipov prevented it. Those are, those are real people who were on the, on the ship. And, you know, we, we worked to, to find out about them and understand who they were. We also represent Archipov's wife, um, Olga, who um, we in our we fictionalized in the interrogation that she um, is being questioned after his death at a later time frame. And you know that that was really inspired by a PBS documentary that we watched about this incident where she's actually interviewed. And so we actually um, were able to see her speak and hear what she said and how she said it. And that really inspired us as well. And you know another piece that we found really rich was one of the um, documents translated in the National Security Archive was a letter from one of the sailors on actually one of the other um, submarines mm. um, to his wife. But it was basically a, a diary or a journal that he kept um, in the form of a letter to his wife, and it really provided some of the con- you know context and content for what those sailors' lives were like um, at the ground level for the crew members and some beautiful imagery and some beautiful, um, I mean, they're, they're humans and, and, and it's just beautiful to see that they're like any other young, you know, young man on, on, on a journey missing his family. And um, we were able to, um, you know, bring some of that material in and color um, the lives of the sailors in that way. Yeah. And the characters that you're mentioning have very um, Soviet names and very Soviet stories, but this is an opera sung in English. Uh, is there some significance to that? Was was that an uh, an intentional decision? You know, yeah, it's a, it's a great question and always a question about how you reflect something. But, you know, in, in our minds, we were really writing for an American audience, um, you know, and we're, we're English speakers and, and Americans. Um, and so um, we we wrote it in, in, in English. Um, there is a, a bit of Russian in it, uh, particularly, um, you know, the men, the men curse in Russian, they're sailors after all, and adds a mm-hmm. little bit of a color and flavor of, of you know, the, the, that reminds us that they're Soviet, um, you know, sailors. But at the end, end of the day, um, you know, our, our core audience is, is Americans and we speak English. And, you know, I believe that we should be communicating to the audience and, and putting up a language barrier is is not helpful. I think if you know if we watched a movie of about a Soviet submarine, they'd all be speaking English too, um, and and that that would that would be the decision that someone would make who wants to communicate a story. 
you're framing it that way, you know, I can't help but to think about this idea of a formalism that Soviet Russian composers like Shostakovich and Prokofiev had to deal with, you know, really making sure that the art speaks to the audience. So that is achieved through the English language. I wonder how you approached that um, orally. What sort of palettes did you um, explore? And were you thinking about, you know, uh, uh, being able to relate to the audience when it came to how the opera just sounds instrumentally? You know, absolutely. I think, you know, my, in my mind, writing the music was, I mean, a lot of it comes from the text and the dramatic situations and try, and, and thinking about how how do I heighten it uh, musically? How how do I express it musically? And first of all, I guess, number one, above anything else was, you know, trying to make the text understandable because that, you know, whenever we hear sung text, whether that's opera or pop songs, it's sometimes mm -hmm. hard to understand the text. So, you know, trying to make the text as clear as possible and at the same time characterize it and, and bring to life the different characters, you know, make their, their, you know, them clear on stage that they're different from each other, that they each have their own personality and their own, you know, emotional and dramatic trajectory. Um, and so bringing all that to life and then bring, you know, kind of filling in with sort of the world of the submarine and, and the sea. And, and there's times, you know, where, um, I guess there's there's three really three different worlds at least that I that I get to work with. Um, you know, one is Olga's world where she's in this interrogation chamber, and and you know there's there's a sound world for that. She's in a different time, 1998, um, many years later, and is in a you know state of anxiety and and you know in in a very restricted environment. Um, and then on the submarine, there's the world of the, being on the submarine, um, which is pretty claustrophobic as well, and and um, and also has a trajectory that it gets hotter and hotter, and and, and all the systems break down, and it's you know it's very um, you know very you know kind of really heavy deprivation of the of the man where they you know it's 130 degrees by the end of the opera on the mm -hmm. on the submarine they they get a glass of water a day to drink and you know there's there's diesel fumes and 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 you know etc so they they lost a third of their body weight um by the end of the journey so it was you know really terrible conditions for them and then there's moments where they surface and they're actually uh, above deck and they get to breathe fresh air and and see the beauty of the ocean. And so there's also this world of the of the ocean and and, and the night sky and things that that they experience, which we get you know, which gives a break from that. And 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 it was a break for them. So for me, it was really about how do I paint these different worlds and also create a trajectory where Olga goes from initially being very you know kind of afraid and scared, and through time she gets more confident, more comfortable. And convinces the the interrogator to let her go, um, and the and the opposite trajectory for the men, where they start out excited about the journey, they're on a mission. This is what they train for, and this is what they do. And you know, by the end, they're they're really suffering and 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 afraid, and and you know, again, have lost a lot of body, you know, weight, and can barely breathe, can barely think, can barely sleep. And um, and so that that trajectory really suggested that the music had to move from you know, one place to another and, and creating that space to do that. So I don't think, I guess, usually about, gee, is, you know, is my, is the music going to be accessible to an audience? I'm just thinking, how do I, you know, how do I convey this? And I suppose at the end of the day, that comes to the, to the same idea. It's about painting a dramatic picture and, um, you know, hopefully the audience, you know, feels it with me. Even in your descriptions, you've painted a picture, for me, a perspective that I didn't 
really have just the grim environments of being in those submarines under under the water for so long. I mean, again, is this a perspective that was brought to you by your research and and learning or or did you sort of have a perspective on 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 that aspect of this? You know, we, it was definitely from our research that we hmm. that we learned about this. I mean, it was um, understanding the level of deprivation and, and, you know, in, in the, both in documentaries that we watched and, and, and the books we read, I mean, this was def- was very much foregrounded. The, the submarines that they, um, that they used for this, for this mission, um, were diesel electric submarines that were really designed for the Arctic. And so when they get into the warm waters of the Sargasso Sea, you know, these, these, uh, machines are breaking down in, in all kinds of ways. Um, and actually one of the things that, caused that was the year before, and this sort of informs the whole opera as well and, and really features in the opera was uh, the previous mission of that Archipop was on was K-19. And there's there's actually been, you know, Hollywood movie about K-19 um, as well, you know, so it that that was a, a nuclear submarine that where the reactor nearly melted down and um, some of the men basically jury-rigged a cooling system um, to prevent the meltdown, but in the in the process, um, you know, were exposed to horrible uh, levels of radiation and 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 died horribly. And um, you know, the rest of the crew was also exposed to levels of radiation, which actually Akupov eventually died of of kidney cancer, mm. um, presumably from that exposure. But but many years later, and that his experience of seeing radiation up close, um, we believe, informed his uh, wisdom in the in the moment of our opera. And so that really serves as a, a backdrop. But also from a practical perspective, the nuclear fleet had been put on on uh, on ice uh, by by the authorities because they knew there were safety problems, and so because of that, they used the diesel electric submarines, which were really not suited for this mission. But that's what they had, um, and so that that does paint you know kind of a very practical level, but also an emotional level the ba- the backdrop for this story. Mm-hmm. And of course, with the backdrop highlighted, we can't uh, take for granted the contemporary significance. You know, our our context, especially when we think about the the war in Ukraine and everything that's going on in Europe. I wonder what the relationship was between the development of this opera and the development of of those tragedies. Did it happen in tandem? Was did the development of this opera happen before we were all thinking about Ukraine? I wonder if you can speak to that. Yeah, I mean, then we did, we began working on the opera and developed the libretto. Really, was was written in 2017. Oh wow! So well before um, the the you know Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, it it you know we were really gesturing at the notion that this is an ongoing threat, and we were actually thinking much more about um, North Korea and the sort of nuclear standoff with North Korea. That's that's mm. continuing, kind of gets hot and cold. Uh, periodically, when 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 they take new actions and 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 want more attention, um, and there's also Iran and and their development of nuclear weapons. Um, we were not expecting something dramatic to happen with Russia. Um, that that was, um, you know, just just happenstance, I suppose. That that came, you know, when we were bringing our opera out, we'd already scheduled the premiere, and it just happened to to be at a time when when it was. Um, you know, when, when that was really present on people's minds. But our, what we're trying to say is that even when we're, we're not seeing it in the, in the headlines, it's behind the surface as a risk for all of us. And you know, we should be more aware of it. Um, it's just been sort of 
um, supported by by um, you know real life events. Um, not that we, we wish for that. We're trying to actually say that we need to do something to avoid this. Um, but it certainly has brought it to top of mind for people. I'll circle back to that idea that that we have to do something. But I wonder when it comes specifically uh, to the audiences of this opera, was the goal um, to get a, a better perspective on history, to be more mindful about nuclear weapons, nuclear disarmament? I wonder what your hopes were um, for the audiences. What did you want them to take away from this experience? Yeah, I mean, I think our, our number one goal was take, you know, have a really, you know, deep and profound operatic experience. Um, but in terms of a, of a broader message and, and, and thought about, you know, what are we trying to say? Absolutely. You know, I think we're really trying to highlight, hey, this is a this is a risk and it's a it's an existential risk, really, that, that we should be aware of and focused on. I don't think we have a series of policy prescriptions. That's not really our role as, as artistic creators. Mm -hmm. um, but I, you know, right now, you know, there, with all, even with all the safeguards, it's come down to the decisions of individuals um, who have prevented, um, you know, these these nuclear exchanges from happening, and and just realizing that, you know, thinking about what safeguards could we have that would better protect us, because um, you know we we can't always count on the individuals to be in the right place at the right time to prevent this. And so far, we've been, you know, lucky. And that's really what that um, article that I read pointed out and was the main thrust of the article. So we're just trying to further that, that, that work and get it in front of people and get people thinking about it. Do you have that general feeling when it comes to the fact that we have not yet reached nuclear winter? Is it really a matter of luck? I'm, I'm, I think many people would argue that it's a matter of diplomacy and relationship building, but I, I don't know, maybe luck is what we're experiencing right now. No, absolutely. Look, I, having grown up, um, uh, you know, and the I was not alive for the Cuban Missile Crisis, but I, I certainly lived in the, you know, 70, grew up in the 70s and, and 80s when, um, you know, the Cold War was was active and, and the idea that you know, of nuclear threat was really present for us. And it felt like in, you know, 1989, when, when, you know, the wall came down and, 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 you know, perestroika, glasnost and all that stuff happened that we felt like we were done. And then, you know, it felt like, you know, this has gone off the radar screen as being a, a, a existential threat. And what really, for me, that's this article um, really brought home, you know, actually that's an illusion and that, mm. that these close calls have happened through time and that we have aging systems that are, you know, storing these these nuclear weapons and maintain these nuclear weapons, and we've got these huge number of weapons. And there's there's people we're monitoring, you know, there's people monitoring um, activity on both sides, the, you know, and and sometimes the computer systems fail and they show launches that that aren't real. And, and the question is, how does someone react to that? Um, there was a there's a, a crazy story where the, the a Soviet um, monitor who saw a launch from the US of, of nuclear of weapons of, of missiles and um, he didn't believe it and so he just sat there for 21 minutes which is how long it would take for them to arrive mm. and waited it out because he you know he was worried if he reported it to his seniors that, that they would respond um, and so that's what I mean by an individual who um, you know was in the right place at the right time that someone with you know um, you know really just thought about it and said this doesn't make sense. I think if there was a, you know, there hasn't been, um, you know, there, ha there hasn't been a confrontation of any kind, 
And um, and if they were going to bomb us, they wouldn't send that few bombs. So I'm going to just going to wait and see what happens. <laughs> and, and but you know that, ner- that those nerves of steel. I mean, you know, if we had somebody else at the controls, they would have escalated that, and and who knows what would have happened. So that that's kind of what we're t- we're talking about. Is it is really a threat that's continued, even though it's you know appeared that that we we mastered that and we thought we had. I I, I was there too until I read that article. Hmm. So from your perspective as an artist, maybe just as a human being, what do we do with that reality? Do we sit around worrying all day? What, what, how, how do you engage the fact that, you know, it's just been a number of close calls. There will likely be more close calls. How do you, how do you engage just that reality emotionally on a day-to-day basis? Yeah. I mean, like you can't live your life worrying that something suddenly there's going to be this nuclear exchange, I suppose, if that happens, you know, we're, it's all over anyway. But I think that we should be asking ourselves and then our leaders, you know, how we, how we make it more, you know, how we make it safer. Uh, I mean, right now with, you know, there's, there's limited communication between the U.S. and Russia and, um, and, and, you know, the other nuclear armed countries, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's been times when we just aren't talking to them and then, and we, we need to be talking and we need to be thinking about the systems that we have and how we make them more robust before, um, you know, before a launch would happen. Um, and because again, you know, coming down to one or a couple of people making a decision is unstable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if it's unstable, eventually we're going to have, you know, we're going to, you know, so we're not going to have the right person at the right time. And someone's going to make a decision that we're all going to regret. And so, you know, we really need to figure out and then relying on computer systems where there's glitches and bugs, very old systems, you know, that's again, a big, a big risk. And that's, you know, putting pressure on those people to make decisions with, with faulty information. And so I think that there's a lot of things that could be done. Um, and we're, I, you know, as I said, with the opera, we're trying to raise awareness rather than come up with a set of policy prescriptions. But, you know, there certainly are things that, that I think, you know, our leaders should be thinking about how to make this safer because, um, you know, we're, we're, while we're focusing on, you know, global warming, which is a huge threat, you know, if we have a nuclear exchange, we're not going to even make it that far. So we right. need to be we mean we need to be addressing all of these things. Um, and and this is something that's you know a significant threat to to us. Mm-hmm. One review uh, that I read described the opera as a work in progress. Is it a work in progress? Are there plans to expand or or shift the, the, the this work moving forward? So it is a, it's a work in progress in the sense that that I think all operas are um, when when you you know bring them to the public and you you hear things and, and when we put it on stage um, we did a concert uh, premiere so when we put it on stage we're going to learn more about it and more about the characters and make you know make adjustments as as we go but it is it is pretty you know full and complete and it is mostly where we want it um, I think it's it's got a you know effective overall shape i think the you know the characters in the story really come out and we got great feedback from audience and from from our reviews um about that so you know it's but 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 like anything that's this big and this complex there's always you know little little screws we can tighten here and there um and or things that we want to bring out and you know little adjustments to make but you know overall um you know it feels like it's it's you know mostly fully there um, and, and like anything, always, always can use refinement probably through the first 
few performances when, once we get on stage, there'll be little things that we want to adjust and tweak um, as we learn about, about the piece more. So how can people uh, keep up with the development of it, maybe catch a future staging and, and even learn more about you and your other works? Um, well, that's a great question. We, we're working on on finding the right you know place to 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 present the stage premiere. So I can't answer that one quite yet, um, but I, I do have a, a website. Um, it's just peternell.com. Um, and it is um, so when we do have a stage premiere, it will be um, you know, be announced there among other places. And, uh, you know, I have some other music there as well, which, you know, which anyone could, uh, you know, sample, etc. That's wonderful. Well, I wanted to ask uh, my final question, you know, looping back around to the uh, general idea of new music, new opera. You know, I'm, I'm based here in uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul and uh, Minnesota opera, you know, easily sells out new works. But it's the, you know, older, you know, so-called canon, uh, canonized works that maybe take a little bit of time or the school outreach concerts to get tickets really going. And I don't mean to pick on them specifically but just broadly i wonder you know what are uh, your words your thoughts on the importance the significance the uh, viability of new music within an art form that for most people still is reminiscent of uh women with horn horn helmets on and you know names like mozart and 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 rossini how does the push and from your perspective of new music fit into all of that yeah, no, I, there's a great tradition of, of opera that, of course, we are building on top of uh, with art, with new works and, and thinking and, you know, but, you know, as I kind of said at the beginning, we're also, you know, I think a lot of those were, were written in the, you know, 19th century or, or earlier and, you know, speak to concerns of people back then. Um, and, you know, I think there's a, you know, it's been an incredible flowering of, of new operas um, really over the last, you know, decade or two that are really addressing, you know, concerns of Americans right now. And are, you know, I think what you're seeing in the audience is that it's speaking to people. Um, I think we've moved away. There was a period of time when, when music maybe even prided itself on new music, prided itself on being difficult and, 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 and hard for people to, to understand. And that that was, you know, in some ways, a badge of honor or, or a, um, you know, uh, you know or, or a goal. Um, and I think we moved away from that. And, and I think creators right now are trying to tell stories, trying to um, communicate, you know, communicate complex ideas and in complex ways. And, and, and you know, with, with a lot of sophistication and, and you know, it's not, not to say that it's, you know, easy listening or, or anything, but I think, you know, people are, are, telling stories in a dramatic way and, you know, authentic in, in ways. And it sounds like at least in, in Minneapolis, it's, it's speaking to people. And, um, you know, so that's great to hear that, that, that that's, that there's energy around the new operas um, because there really should be that we're, you know, creators today are telling today's stories. Um, we're telling stories from the past that we think reflect on today in, in, a, in a meaningful way as, as we are doing. Um, and so I think that's, you know, the idea that something from, you know, 200 years ago is going to really speak to people and it's beautiful music and, 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 it's, and, and great stories and, and, you know, and it should speak to people, but, but the, the idea that, that, that we can't do that today with, with the talent of our, you know, of our librettists and our composers, um, seems, seems crazy. And I, I feel like it's great that we are starting to break through in that way. 
short excerpt there from a work by Peter Nell called Lines and Angles, uh, really, uh, you know, a, a really great example of the sort of orchestral music that my ear leans to, you know, much less the the subject matter that he explores uh, in Archipov and his uh, many other compositions. So huge shout out and thank you uh, to Peter Nell for joining me uh, this week in the third movement. You know, Scott, we talk about how music can inspire diversity and mm-hmm. anti-racism. We talk about how music can, you know, uh, help engage conversation when it comes to challenging uh, gender dynamics and gender politics. There, there are so many places in which music can have an impact outside of music. I never really thought about that when it came to something like nuclear disarmament, but I think it's really cool that we have music that can even have an impact there. I think about um, Daisaku Ikeda, the president of uh, our Buddhist organization, and in his opinion, nuclear weapons are at the top of the list of human evils, the things that we have to really deal with to survive as a human race. There are a lot of opinions on what is at the top of that list. There are, of course, many people who would say, we have to get rid of racism if we're going to survive as a human race. Mm -hmm. I remember when um, Leonardo DiCaprio came out with that global warming film, Mm -hmm. I found it very... almost jarring in a good way or just of of note that he considered global warming at the top of that list. This is our greatest danger. Where do you rank nuclear weapons? Is that something that you think about every day? I think the argument is that it's a conversation that's, uh, it's a, sorry, a tragedy that's always a little closer than we think, you know, as, as portrayed in this opera, as told by history, where do you, where do you put nuclear weapons on your list of dangers? To, to the human race, it's, active dangers, I yeah, should say. It's high. It's very high. Really, an apocalypse is really the highest. I don't care how we get there, mm-hmm. either through climate change or a nuclear disaster or a nuclear war. Hmm. But I mean, this, go- this goes back for me, this goes back to 1983 when, uh, what network was it? One of the, the ABC, I believe it was ABC, aired a television show called The Day After. And it basically detailed what would happen after a nuclear war started. That rubbed me the wrong way. So yeah. I was very, very afraid of, of nuclear war for years and years after that. There would be nightmares surrounding it. And, you know, we just listened to a little bit of Sting. He wrote a piece called Russians, which speaks to this very thing he used uh he sampled prokofiev's uh death of kija mm-hmm. for the the base of it and then wrote his own lyrics over the top so people in my generation have had this pretty close to the surface for a while this, yeah this fear of nuclear war i can't remember what season it was but one of the seasons of american horror story the first episode is nuclear war starting Mm. you know and then it just goes on from there what the world looks like afterwards and of course it you know it's american horror story ties in witches and stuff but that (laughs) that is you know that 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 is a horrifying thought uh you know i'm between minnesota and new york all the time i always joke and say that i cannot be in new york when the aliens get here Mm. i just don't want to do that (laughs) but uh but you know joking aside imagine what that moment in society no matter where you are would look like, you know, when those sirens are going off and you guess you, everything is about to be obliterated, you're about to die is just such a, a horrifying thought. And we, we can't just 
pretend that it doesn't exist. And I think this this opera shines an important light again on the history and the the degree to which this needs to be uh, front of mind. So, you know, uh, again, a uh, huge thanks to Peter Nell for joining me. All right, we're going to uh, transition into the final movement this week with a little Eric Clapton. I don't really know Eric Clapton, but mm. I got this tune uh, from Dell. Dell puts me on to a lot of music. So this is called Tears in Heaven. A little bit of this to get us into the final movement this week. Dell and I had to put down our dear cat Grover last week, and this is the first tune that Dell decided to put on the radio as we were driving home after this very, 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 very difficult afternoon. Why am I bringing this up? Why am I talking about this on Triloquy? When we talk about gaining different perspectives, creating dialogue or creating circumstance that can help us get another view of life, which may result in changes in behavior, specifically as we talk about changes in programming, but changes in anything. I feel like I experienced a bit of that. Hmm. I've never been an animal person. That's, that's just not uh, my my karma. That, that's just not how I've I've lived my life. I've been around animals, been around people with pets, it's never been my thing personally. I have to say, when we had to, you know, make the difficult decision to um, to send Grover to heaven, I was as impacted as if Grover was my own cat. Sure, that was a very, very um, enlightening moment. There have been people who've talked about losing pets or oh, my pet is in the vet, and I can say oh, I'm sorry, or I hope I everything everything as well, but that will come out of my mouth differently now. Mm -hmm. My empathy, my levels of empathy have grown because I have gone through this myself. Of course, we can talk about, you know, the difficult times and and that sort of thing. But the way that I sort of view it, certainly at this point, is to be grateful for that difficulty because now I can connect with people on another level, certainly um, pet owners. I wonder if you can speak to pet empathy. I'm sure you have uh, friends or people in, in your circles who aren't dog owners or dog lovers, but the relationship you have with Radar, you know, mm-hmm. has to translate to them somehow. Or maybe do you feel like it can't until you really go through something like that yourself? Mm. That's a good question. I mean, I think I certainly think that people would be able to at least fake empathy if they've never uh lost a pet but you know radar was just he's just always there i mean even when i left to go someplace he didn't need to be he would ride along mm-hmm. he was there to fill up the corners um whenever i was down i look over and there he is you know so now i put myself in dell's shoes and i was in arizona while all this was happening and all i could do was just send him notes like I'm thinking about you. I, I know exactly what you're going through. And for him to be there 
for Grover in that moment was the most important thing. And he did it with strength and, and some grace. Yeah. Shout out to Dell. Yeah. And shout out to all of the pet owners. I feel for you now in a way that I could not have felt for you a week ago. But now I think I get it at least a little bit more. You know, in, in my and Dell's Buddhist practice, we talk all the time about those proverbial lotus blossoms only being able to grow in those proverbial swamps. That was certainly a swamp. That, mm. that we were dealing with last week and will continue to deal with. We have to get used to life without this being that, that lived here. He's on to his next life. But as I was saying, I'm grateful for that because now that empathy has really um, has, has, uh, has been born from that difficult situation. It makes me think about how any difficult situation can be contextualized that way. I know for the last couple of weeks in the triloquies, I've been talking about how work has been stressing me out. I want to, you know, clearly state here that there are levels of arts administration that challenge me on a daily basis of all of the things that I have ever done in the field of music. This is by far the hardest. I wish the only thing I had to worry about was learning how to play these excerpts perfectly and going and take auditions. You know, this is really hard work that I'm doing, but I'm appreciating the challenge because I know that this will result in some growth in the same way that last week's challenge has resulted in some growth. I believe that all challenges result in growth. So, you know, as as uh, Joe Button says all the time, you know, let's enjoy our headache. We're in a new year. We have new challenges ahead of us. Maybe, you know, we're returning to work and don't really want to return to work. There have actually been Heard. articles written about that. But let's try to think about these challenges as opportunities for growth. Let's think about these dissonant moments that we deal with in our lives, what we need for those proverbial lotus blossoms to grow. Rest in peace and rest in power to Grover. Shout out to all of the pet owners out there, especially. I'm a little closer to understanding your life, your lived experiences, your emotions, all thanks to a really difficult time that I went through. I think if we can spread that in many other ways, that level of empathy, that level of proximity to different perspectives and experiences, we may be able, we just may be able to do something about this thing called classical music so that it's more inclusive and uh, and and more uh, decolonized than it is today. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. 